we come before you in Jesus' name. God, thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness. Thank you for allowing us to be here this morning to hear this message. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more in our lives. I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning. That your people would not hear me or see me. And that I would not put any of my opinions, any of my my ideas first, Lord, that your word be preeminent in this message. Lord, keep me from error. Lord, keep your people from believing a lie. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you could turn me down just a little bit. Um, okay. We'll pray for this at the end of our service. Remind me. So, um, I want to say I really do hope that that as we've been going through the doctrines of grace and discussing the things that we have been discussing over the past few weeks, I pray that you have been encouraged. Um, And I also pray that you've been challenged. I know that it has challenged us in a lot of different areas, but I pray that you find the, the grounding of every single one of our teachings in Scripture. Amen. The last time we were together, we looked at the second part of the T in the acrostic tulip total depravity. We call that lesson absolute inability. We learned that because of Adam's sin, it resulted in what is known as original sin. Original sin is the result of Adam's Adam's sin, which gave us a corrupt mind, a corrupt will and corrupt desires that have been passed on to the progeny or the ancestors of Adam and Eve, you and I. We learn that we lost the innocence and freedom of holy choices that please God as Adam possessed prior to the fall. And then we looked at a a debate between Augustine and Pelagius in which the freedom of the will to choose spiritual good and the effects of Adam's fall came to the forefront of their debate. We learned that Adam's fall resulted in more than just corruption. When Adam fell, all men fell and all men died. And the promise of God and the consequence that God gave in the garden became a reality. Man died in the garden and his ability to choose that which is good also died with him and us in the garden. You and I, we lay in our tombs without any ability whatsoever to choose God on our own. Adam passed death on to every single person. You can plug that in. The Bible says in Romans 5, 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. First Corinthians 5, 22 says for in Adam, all die. We are dead and, and God, listen, commands people to believe. The question that we left off with last time is, how is it possible for a whole race of Adams, a whole race of Lazaruses, as it were, dead men, to respond to God on their own? If we are left on our own to believe in God and trust in God, then the question is, by what power do we believe? By what power do we trust in God? By what power, if we are left on our own to trust in God? Do we believe and trust in God? If you say there is no such thing as election 
and everyone makes his own choice based upon his own ability, then the question again is, by what power does the dead man rise? By what power does the man who cannot believe cause himself to believe? By what power does the blind man make himself see? By what power does the man who has who is in darkness make himself come to the light? By what power does the dead man Lazarus again bring himself to life? If God does not intervene, then where on earth will this power come from? The Bible does not describe us as disabled. The Bible describes describes us as dead. Enter now the doctrine of unconditional election. What is the doctrine of unconditional election? I'm glad you asked. When someone asks about the doctrine of election, they cannot avoid referring to this doctrine of predestination and say, well, you must be a Calvinist if you believe in predestination. Calvinism does hold firmly to the doctrine of predestination. It certainly is not, though, the central theme of historic Calvinism. There was nothing found in Calvin's teaching, John Calvin's teaching, that were not first found in Martin Luther's teaching. And nothing in Luther that was not first found in Augustine. And nothing in Augustine that was not first found in Paul. Nothing in Paul that was not first found in Christ. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther wrote more about predestination than John Calvin ever did. But why is the doctrine of predestination a reality in almost every single church? Why does every church have some kind of doctrine of predestination in the theology? The reason? If one seeks to be biblical or develop a theology that is biblical, one cannot avoid the doctrine of predestination because the doctrine of predestination is biblical. What I would like to do for you today, Lord willing, is present to you the doctrine of predestination. Show you an election, show you biblically that God has always had a chosen people. Speak about the conditions of sovereign election. Why does God choose anyone? And the doctrine of foreknowing. That's where we're going this morning. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Ephesians chapter one. Whoa. We are going to read verses 3 through 12. Actually, let's start in verse 1. Might as well. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11. In him, we have obtained and obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. You cannot avoid the doctrine of predestination. Twice within these 12 verses, we see the doctrine. If you read verse 2 of chapter 1 very carefully, you will see that Paul is speaking to a particular people in Ephesus. Who is Paul writing to? Well, he's obviously not writing to every single person in Ephesus. Paul says in verse 2, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful to Jesus Christ. Now we know who the letter is written to. Paul begins to speak to the believers who are who have been predestined according to the counsel of God's will. Who is God speaking to? Who are the predestined? The saints. The saints would be those who God has chosen to belong to him. For those who think predestination, though, is an isolated doctrine. And maybe this is the only place that we see this doctrine in all of Scripture. I'd like to refer to you to Romans chapter eight. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and go back one more, one more. Those whom, sorry, he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. At the end of this sermon, we'll discuss the difference between foreknow and foresee. But at this moment, we now see the doctrine of predestination presented again. Okay, pastor. So there are two places in all of Scripture where we find predestination. Not so fast. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were at, as were appointed, that should be were another E at the end, appointed to eternal life. There it is again. They could only believe because they were appointed to believe or because they were predestined to believe. So three places then, Pastor, three places. Let's keep going. First Peter, chapter one, verses one through two. Those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. In sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. Okay, so four places. You got me. But that's not enough. Peter's speaking to specific people, the elect. They have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. God foreknew and forechose them. First Peter 2, 8. They stumble because they disobey the words as they were predestined to do. Do y'all looking at that? Are you looking at the same thing I'm seeing? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. It's in big print who called you 
out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I'm feeling very uncomfortable with all of this predestination talk, Pastor. Well, you shouldn't have came this morning then because Second Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you because, or brothers, beloved by the Lord, because he chose you, God chose you, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you. Through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop it, please. Paul is speaking to the church of Thessalonica. God chose you. God called you. This, again, is a doctrine of predestination being displayed in election. Please stop, Pastor. I can't. Because it's all over the place. Second Timothy 2, 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, not of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings of the gospel by the power of God who saved us. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. That phrase before the ages began is translated as in eternity past or before there was time. Ah, man, it just excites me. If you're saved and you're sitting here before there was time, he knew you. We're going to get to that. Don't get ahead of myself. That me. You have been predestined to belong to God before there was time. God sealed you as his own. Jesus. You wouldn't need Jesus words. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Wow. Jesus said that the choosing is not up to men, but it's up to God. And that choice has already been made. Matthew twenty two fourteen, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 24, 22, uh, verse 24 and 31, Jesus said he would protect and gather his elect. Mark 13, 22, Jesus said false Christ will even try to lead the elect astray. Luke 18, 7, Jesus said that God will give justice to his elect. There's the rest of the references if you want to go and and. Keep me honest. You can't get away from this. I can't get away from this. This is why I'm now reformed. I'm seeing these things in Scripture and saying I can't get away from it. It's everywhere. This doctrine is virtually all over the New Testament. Okay, but what about the Old Testament? Ah, I got you there, didn't I? Number two, God has always had a chosen people. Let me take you through a journey through the Old Testament and let's connect it to the new Genesis chapter six. God knew the evil intentions of man's heart and decided to blot out every man from the face of the earth. Did God not choose Noah? Out of all the people of all the world, God says, I choose Noah. And it was not because there was something special in Noah. Noah was a sinner just like you and I, born a sinner just like you and I. And his faithfulness or his righteousness was simply faith in the most high God as comparison to the faithlessness of sinful man all around him. He walked with God like his ancestor Enoch to walk with God. And out of all the people, God chose to save Noah and his family. Did God not choose out of the people, out of all the people in the entire world that were scattered abroad after the Tower of Babel? God looks at this one seemingly insignificant man living in prosperous Mesopotamian land 
among people whom worship as many gods as they can make up and says to him, I'm choosing you and I'm calling you out of this land. Genesis chapter 12, verse one. Now, the Lord said to Abram. Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation. and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing out of all the people in all the world. God looks at this man living in a pagan country and says, I choose you. Go. I choose you. He could have chosen anyone, but he chooses Abram. You don't believe me. Genesis chapter 25. Before the twin babies, Jacob and Esau were ever born and could ever do anything good or evil. God chooses Jacob rather than Esau. And says to this man, Jacob, whose name was once trickster and con artist, you will be Israel triumphant of God. He chooses this man. Out of. The 11 brothers, Genesis 37, out of the 11 brothers, was it not God who chose Joseph and gave him the coat of many colors to be treated and, and with hate by his brothers, to be sold into slavery, to be purchased by the high officer Potiphar, to be placed in a prison only to meet up with Potiphar's officials or Pharaoh's officials, to be given an interpretation of a dream, to give the interpretation of the dream to Pharaoh to be used by God to save many people, to meet up with his starving family, to save them from starvation, bringing their family to Egypt. Was this all random? No. God was choosing and making choices all throughout this, this time. And Joseph at the end said, you meant this for evil, but God, God meant this for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This was no random act. This was God planning and choosing every single moment in history. Exodus chapter 3, God elected Moses. Numbers chapter 3, God chose the sons of Aaron. Joshua chapter 1, God chooses Joshua. Judges chapter 6, God chooses Gideon. Judges 13, God chooses Samson. God chooses Ruth. God chooses Samuel. God chooses David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, David, or Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Habakkuk, Malachi, John the Baptist. You can't tell me election is not in the Bible. God chose. Did Jesus not call Peter from being a fisher of, of fish to a fisher of men? Did Jesus not call Levi from the tax collector's booth to now stand at the side of Christ? Yes. Did, did Jesus not call James and John from their mother's side to be with Christ? Did Jesus not call Nathaniel from under the fig tree to follow him as a disciple? Did Jesus not call Zacchaeus from the sycamore tree to salvation? Did Jesus not call the dead man Lazarus from the grave to life? Did Jesus not save and invite the thief on the cross to join him in paradise? Did Jesus or Jesus not intervene Saul's path and call him from darkness into light? If you hear all of this and you say there's no such thing as the doctrine of election and there is no such thing as the doctrine of predestination, then you don't need more evidence. You need to be regenerated. You need to be saved. My wife, as I read that to her, she says, that sounds very Spurgeon-like. She says, the only thing you need to add to that, and you're going to hell. As Spurgeon probably would say. But this leads us to a very serious question. Why? Why? Out of all the people in the entire world, God chose to elect and call these people. Why? 
What did they do to be called? What merit did they perform in order to be called by God? Number three, on what basis does God elect? What are the conditions for election? Well, in order to answer this question, we have to go through some things that we already know. We already know that we are totally depraved. We are corrupt in mind, will, and desires. There's nothing in us that would cause us to look for God or pursue God. Romans 3 gives us an accurate description of who we are in our sinfulness and our selfishness. We also know that we are absolutely unable to come to God on our own. Amen? God did not choose. God does not choose us because we choose him. I'll say that again. God does not choose us because we chose him. Instead, he says, you did not choose me. I chose you. It's the other way around and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We have also given a clear presentation that God is always the first in the process of choosing. God always does the choosing first. We never do the choosing first. You can only choose God based on the fact that God has already chosen you. If God did not choose you, you cannot choose God and you will not choose God. You have no desire to choose God. So we're back to square one. Why did God choose us? On what basis did God choose you? What merit did you perform to be chosen by God? Let me ask you a question. What did Abram, who was living in a pagan, idolatrous country, do to be chosen by God? Anything good? No. What did Jacob, who even before he was born, in his mother's womb, they had already called him a con artist. What did he do? Even before he was born to be chosen by God, even in his mother's womb, he's grabbing the heel of his brother. What did Samson and, you know, Samson's life. What did he do to be chosen by God before his mother's womb, before he entered his mother's womb? Matthew was collecting taxes. Peter was a fisherman. Saul was on his way to persecute Christians. You were a drug addict. An alcoholic, an angry man, a angry woman, a liar, a cheat, a thief. What did you do in order to be chosen by God? You know who you are, whether you have the story of the hardest criminal or whether you have the story of I pretty much stayed on the straight and narrow. All of us were equal in our sin and depraved. In our nature. What did we do to be chosen by God? The answer? Not a thing. God works are not. God's choosing is not. Good works are not the basis for being elect. There are some people who think if I go to church, then I'll be accepted by God. You're wrong. If I start doing good works outside of the church, then maybe I'll be accepted by God. If I say enough prayers, if I read my Bible long enough, if I stay on my knees long enough, then God will accept me as his own. What you are doing is you are adding to the grace of God. You cannot add to the grace of God. 
Grace is a gift. It's undeserved and it's unearned. The only person that can take any credit for the election is Christ. The only person's works who can be presented to God as being acceptable, holy and right are the works of Christ. Christ and his perfect life, Christ and his perfect death are the only thing presented to God and accepted by God as a perfect, acceptable work. And he does it on the behalf of his elect. That's the only work accepted by God. He has sealed our election and he has paid the price for our calling. Colossians 1.14 says, God has purchased our freedom with his blood. And he has forgiven all of our sins. First Peter 1.18, you or know that you are ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You are not your own, Corinthians says, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Christ is the only work. Christ's work is the only work acceptable by God. Your works are never going to be accepted by God. Isaiah says they are as filthy rags before God. There is nothing that you can do to earn election. You are either elect or not elect. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. There is no merit that you could ever do that would cause God to say, okay, now I like you. Now I'll choose you. It is simply a work of grace. And for those of you who are sitting here and you have faith in Christ, you need to rejoice because you were the Abram. That of all the people in all the world, God says, I choose you. You were the Noah. That of all the sinfulness going around in the world that you are also and I was also a part of, God says, but I'm pulling you out of that. Here's something that is very, very important for you to get. God did not foresee your works or your faith in the future and therefore choose you based on what he saw you would do. I used to believe that God would choose people based on the fact that God, who is all knowing, could see into the future and say, ah, that Antonio. I see he's going to choose me one day. Well, I'll go ahead and and make him mine as well. There's a problem with that. Here's the problem. Rather than God being all knowing, God is now capable of learning something. If we say God looks into the future and he learns or discovers that we would choose him, then God is no longer omniscient. He's no longer all knowing because he now sees or learns something. Now, one of his eternal attributes, omniscience, is thrown out the window. Another problem is in this equation where God sees that we chose him. So then he chooses us. God, again, is not first in choosing. We are. He just knows that we're going to choose him first. So then we ch- he chooses us. That's not the way it works. Ah, I see Antonio. I'm glad he's going to make the right choice. So I will choose him too. That's not the way it works. He chooses us. Therefore, we can choose him. And then also, this equation denies our depravity. And this equation, God sees or foresees 
that we are going to have a, ch- a chance or the ability to choose him. And in doing so, it implies that there's something in us that can choose God. Then all of a sudden, our T, total depravity, just breaks down. Because now we're saying we can choose God, and we can't. So, why in the world does God choose people? Here's the answer. God's election of sinners is based solely upon his own good pleasure and sovereign will. God doesn't need me. Why does God choose for his own good pleasure? For his own sovereign will, because he wants to, because he's God, because he can, because he's God and I'm not. And God doesn't need me. God doesn't look and say, wow, he's got a lot of gifts. I could really use him. I've got nothing. If I were to stand up here and say (coughs) all the good things that I think are in me, I would be lying. And grace would no longer be grace. It would be me being really, really special and saying, that's why God wants me. That's that's so false. There's nothing in me that's good. There's not one good thing in me apart from the grace of God. And because of the grace of God, there is only one good thing in me, God. And he doesn't choose me because of me. He chooses me because of him. Romans 9, 16 says, so then it salvation depends not on human will or exertion, not on the man who runs or the man who wills, but on God who has mercy. He goes on to say in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is God's divine prerogative to choose who's his and who's not his. We can't make God choose. God is in charge. He's sovereign. You can't convince someone uh, enough. You can't give them enough information. It is up to God and God alone. You can give them information. You can pray for them. You can persuade them. But you can encourage them. But ultimately, it's the choice of the Holy Spirit to persuade someone. We can do nothing except share the gospel. And those who belong to God will respond. Last but not least, God chose you and foreknew you before the foundations of the world. So, yes, God, it's his choice. And that choice has been a choice made from eternity past. He's always known you. I'm going to break this down a little bit. Next week, we're going to talk about what is known as the order salutis. That is the order of salvation that is revealed in the golden chain of redemption that's found in Romans chapter eight. Before you were predestined, you were foreknown. Think about this now. When we see the word foreknown in the scriptures, it is referring to an intimate love relationship that God has between himself and his elect. It's not merely the idea of knowing that a person would exist. Rather, it is when God foreknows. It is to say that he has loved you and had a relationship, an intimate relationship with you already. Not that you existed, but he has known you. He has foreloved you intimately before you were ever born and chosen you to be his own. When we see in Genesis chapter four, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they conceived. She conceived and gave and conceived and bore and Cain. That is an intimate new that they're speaking about. There is a, a an intimacy between now Adam and Eve. That is a face to face love relationship. The word new. Cain knew his wife. Same word. When the Bible talks about foreknow. That's the same exact word. Those whom he foreknew. 
is the same new or intimacy that we see described between Adam and Eve, Cain and his wife. God has an intimate relationship with you from eternity past. He knew you, loved you, and called you to be his own. It speaks of a predetermined choice to set his love and establish an intimate relationship with his elect. I love the way R.C. Sproul put this. From eternity, from all eternity, God foreknew his elect. He had an idea of their identity in his mind before he created them. He foreknew them, not only in the sense of having a prior idea of their personal identities, but also in the sense of foreloving them. When the Bible speaks of knowing, it often distinguishes between a simple mental awareness of a person and a deep, intimate love of a person. The Reformed view teaches that all whom God has foreknown, he's also predestined to be inwardly called, justified and glorified. God sovereignly brings to pass the salvation of his elect and only of his elect. The golden chain of redemption that we'll talk about next week, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined after the foreknowing, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who is the center of this golden chain? God. God is freely working. God is freely choosing. God is freely justifying. Why? For his glory. For his honor and for his praise. Ephesians 1 4 says, even he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God made a free choice. God has chosen some of you. God has chosen to pour out his love and his mercy and his grace upon you. So let us not run from this doctrine in opposition to loss of our so-called free will or in opposition to what we think is fair and not fair in God's free choice of who would and who would not be his. But rather, let us rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the beginning of time. Let us rejoice that although God was under no obligation to show mercy to any person, no, under no obligation, show grace to sinful people. God, who is rich in mercy and rich in love, chose to pour out his love and pour out his mercy and to pour out his grace on you, his elect. Let us rejoice at the God of the Bible. Let us rejoice because of the God of the Bible. Let us fall on our face and worship God, lifting up our voices and our hands and our hearts to the one who is, was and always will be able to save us from ourselves. Let us shout for joy that he elected to rescue us from our graves. Let us shout for joy that he elected to pull us out of the muck and mire. Let us shout for joy that he has elected to rescue us out of the darkness and pull us into his marvelous light because of his great grace and love. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let us stand.